Yo, is this thing on? Man, whatever. Walk with me. Welcome back to Walk with TFB. Tim Bryson here, and as y'all know, I'm a Black millennial who is eager to have unfiltered conversation with authentic people centered on education, sport, and culture. Today, we are walking with an educator, a writer, and a storyteller. An Oklahoma-ish native, he has been a phenomenal leader since his childhood. After being named Youth of the Year for the second time, he stayed close to home and attended the University of Central Oklahoma, where he earned his bachelor's in organizational communication. While at UCO, he was elected student body president, a role that has continued to inform both his research and his practice as a higher education and student affairs educator. After earning his master's degree from Indiana University and working full-time for several years, our guest moved to the DMV, where he earned his PhD in student affairs at the University of Maryland College Park. While at Terp, he worked in fraternity sorority life, undergraduate student legal aid, and was elected president of the graduate student government. These positions ultimately prepared him for his next step, where he now serves as an assistant professor of practice at the University of Texas at Austin. The words above describe some of his career progression but don't come close to naming the influence he's had in the lives of those connected with him. Michael is one of the most inspirational human beings I've ever encountered. I cannot stress enough that Michael is easily among the most well-known, most respected, and most admired university leaders on our campus. And Michael is a true leader who has an incredible talent in motivating and inspiring students and people. His creativity is through the roof. These LinkedIn recommendations are one thing, However, this guest has inspired me and reignited my curiosity and desire for learning. So it's a no brainer to take a walk with him on this show. So without further ado, y'all help me welcome Dr. Michael A. Goodman. What is up? Tim, that introduction, I felt, I was like grinning, like who's this person you're talking about? So I'm honored. Thank you for the nice intro. Now the people wrote that about you. I mean, I can say my, I will say my own piece, but like they wrote that about you. It's very thoughtful. And it's, it's, a, it's a good reminder, especially in academia, where it's easy to lose ourselves a little bit and to lose our confidence and our, like, I don't know, the belief in ourselves. And so it's, it's uh, I'm grinning and also probably blushing below my beard. So <laughs> that's all good, y'all. I'm glad, like I said, I'm glad to get you on the show. Um, this is going to be a good conversation. It's going to be a good conversation for sure. Um, not just at the moment that we met, uh, at least within my doc experience, really career journey. Um, but you're a dope human being, mm-hmm. just overall dope human being. But, oh gosh. but, but, you. but, but, but before we go any further, season four, we're doing some things a little bit different. Um, and so we're kicking off this season in each episode asking, you know, what brings you joy? Mm, I love that. And I love what your past guests have said and, and lots of what they've shared, like certainly resonates for me. I would say what brings me joy is laughter. Like mm. I, like we're in like lots of difficult spaces and tough times. And even if you scroll Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, like all the news feeds, it can become a space where it's hard to find joy through laughing and joy through, I don't know, cutting up and, and not to dismiss the real pain that's happening in the world and like the real impact that current events and things are having on human life. But I also love when Twitter just makes me roll and I'm just cutting up seeing what people are, you know, live their own lived experience and their commentary and then having friends. And it's like, like, those are things that have helped me pull through this past 18 months, but also it just brings me joy to feel like my cheeks are sore. Like that's, that is such a filling moment for me. And I'm such an extrovert too. So having spent so much time 
alone, to be honest, over the past two years, and especially during my dissertation experience, which was a very isolating experience, to find spaces where I can just laugh and laugh with people and at each other and cut up and just see the most ridiculous things, you know, memes and the way the, the way the internet rolls, like that brings me a lot of joy. And so those are the things that I'm like, let me hold on to those little moments. Half my phone uh, photo album is like screenshots of things that made me laugh out loud. And I think probably a lot of people share that. So that's at the moment, that's what's bringing me joy. I appreciate you naming that. And that is definitely true. Let me ask, do you have TikTok as well? I don't have TikTok. I feel like I'm an old millennial and I feel like I, the TikTok that I digest is via everyone else reposting it to Twitter oh. and Instagram. And I feel like that's good enough, but I also have had so many people say, Michael, you finding yourself on TikTok would bring even more joy and even more laughter. So I'm, I'm always like very tempted and I haven't, I haven't fully crossed the threshold yet. I will say if you don't do it right now, cause you'll be okay. on it for hours, like literally hours just laughing. That's a that's a day and that's a dangerous for me because I can get sucked into something and then like I come out of it and I'm like, where have I been for the past two hours? <laughs> you don't don't download it right now. <laughs> but but Dr. Goodman, Dr. Goodman, Dr. Goodman, like I said, you reignited right my curiosity, my desire for learning. Uh that class I took what fall 2020 about learning. Mm -hmm. Uh we're gonna talk more about learning and education and knowledge and knowing and unlearning, of course, during segment mm -hmm. two. But uh, segment one, right? What is your story? Yeah, my story, it's so interesting also to hear you mention Youth of the Year, which was like this pivotal experience for me as a military kid, as a kid from Oklahoma, as a kid who like never really understood leadership outside of a formal leadership role, like that Youth of the Year um, grounding was so special for me. So I'm happy to share a little bit about that too. But my story really starts on an Air Force base in Oklahoma City. I was born on an Air Force base, lived there for 15 years or lived on an Air Force base for 15 years and had this very like unique, somewhat sheltered experience as a military kid. Um, and also in this unique geography of Oklahoma City, which has massively transformed since when I grew up. But I feel like that's where it all started for me. And I had so many people give me opportunities and a lot of those opportunities were in leadership. And so the opportunity to be in student council, the opportunity to run for office at you know 16 was huge for me to be a leader in my school, in my community. And I never really connected those pieces to like a future. So like I never thought, oh, I'm gonna be a leader when I grow up. I just kind of thought I'm doing these really cool leadership experiences now. And I always played that one step at a time. Um, and then it wasn't really until doing the Youth of the Year program, which was with the Boys and Girls Clubs and also um, the Air Force, uh, which my dad was in active duty for 20 something years, that I started to meet other kids like me from around the world who were also interested in making a change in the world, making a change in, on their Air Force base, but also in the lives of their community. And so I started to find little, you know, little ways for me to do that through the Boys and Girls Club. I mean, I was a Boys and Girls Club Youth Center kid from probably like kindergarten through my senior year of high school. So like before and after school, that's where I was at. And being a leader in that space, but then also being a leader in school helped really get me to college. I never really saw going to college as something, which is funny now because I teach higher ed. So it's like the fact that back in the day, I was like, I don't know if I'm going to go to college. Um, I went to this thing called Boys State. Have you have you heard of Boys oh, State? Yeah. Did you go to no. Boys State? I did not, but I was big in okay. South Carolina. It was big. Yeah. So, and it's a I, this is my own experience with it, a very problematic space in a lot of ways, but it's also a very unique space. And I did learn a lot about government from going to Boy State. Um, but one of the most 
I would say impacting things was that they had a college fair and I walked by the University of Central Oklahoma booth and this woman named Mishan Conley was sitting at the booth and said, hey, you should go to UCO. And I was like, I don't know if I'm going to go to college. And she was like, oh my God, sit down. And so I sat with this woman named Mishan and we had this amazing conversation and she told me about a scholarship I could get for leadership and that actually my alma mater had, you know, all these big ideals of leadership that were pressing at the time. And so I thought, well, let me just go to that school then. Both my parents went there, my sister went there. And so I ended up applying to UCO, going to UCO and fully getting plugged into leadership. So I did all the leadership things, you know, you could think of, like you said, student government, lots of other things. And, and honestly, I owe all of that to Mishan. Like, I think if I hadn't have been at Boy State at that time and in that specific hall where they had all those colleges represented, I don't know that I would have gone to college or I certainly wouldn't have gone to UCO. And so I, I and every time I see her or, or anytime Mishan crosses my timeline, I'm like, thank you for everything. You're the reason where I'm at today. Um, and she probably is like, yeah, many students tell me that, yeah. <laughs> but I, I feel it like in my core. So, so yeah, all that to say from there, that really propelled me into like what it means to be a leader on a, a larger level and what it means to be in higher ed as a practitioner and as a scholar and and then the rest was kind of history. Like I found myself at Indiana, um, had lots of personal things, you know, along the way. So like coming out, and figuring out who I am as a queer person in society, and also then figuring out who I am as a practitioner and, and what type of practice I want to do. And we've talked to him about like the uniqueness of what future things could be for a career in higher education, mm -hmm. even though that mm -hmm. sometimes there's all these, you know, boundaries around what a higher education practitioner is. But I've tried to disrupt those and bump up against those and try to be as, um, I try to challenge the process as much as I can, especially with the different privileges I have. I'm a white guy. I have lots of education. I would say I'm probably middle to upper middle class. So I try to take all those things with me using my privileges for good and and that's landed me really where I'm at now as a never thought I'd be a professor. And yet here I am. <laughs> that's a long version, but that's my story. That was no, it was, it was perfectly timed to be to be honest. But I want to <laughs> dig into a lot of what you said. I mean, even the first thing that's coming to mind is uh, Dr. Sierra. Because I believe she was Dr. G's uh, advisee as well. I'm making that up. Uh, perhaps I've, I've lost my memory is fading. <laughs> I'm pretty sure because she's a storyteller. You're a storyteller. Yeah. I'm starting this podcast. Like, which I think I'm a storyteller. You're absolutely a storyteller. Uh, yeah. No, no, no. I just like distilling y'all stories. But where does that come from for you? Mm. That's a great question. And I will say telling people stories makes you a storyteller. I mean, that's the, the beauty of being able to even know what questions to ask makes for a good storyteller. Um, and I think you're an excellent storyteller. But I would say for me, that comes from the belief that like motivation matters and, and being able to share parts of ourselves can motivate people to actualize that within their own life mm. and to be able to find commonalities. I think one of the things I grappled with, especially when I was coming out, and especially as I thought about what it means to be an out person in higher education, um, before I got to my master's program, I had not really met any queer people. Uh, and they, they certainly were present in Oklahoma. So I, I honor and appreciate those folks. And, and especially at the time when I was in college, but I got to Indiana and I met all these queer people and queer people in relationships. And that was just like part of their life. And so I was really inspired by that to be able to say me sharing parts of myself allows someone to see something that maybe they didn't see back when they were, you know, in high school or in middle school. Um, I remember having a student who was in a, um, historically white fraternity say to me, you're the first gay person that I've ever really gotten to know. And this was a junior in college. 
-hmm. And I remember thinking like, had I not been open about being gay or had I not talked about, you know, the woes of like life as a young single person in Bloomington, Indiana, that student maybe wouldn't have had that, you know, opportunity to, and maybe the student has never met another gay or has not met, but has not interacted with other gay people since then. But for me, that's been a big part of my um, storytelling, which is like just the ability to say, this is about relationships and this is who I am. And it's okay for us to bring ourselves into these spaces. Um, And, and sometimes there's not safety to do that. And so that's also in a lot of ways, that's a art to be, you know, figured out and navigated through. But I would say that's kind of why I have felt myself deeply as a storyteller, because I've wanted to make sure that I'm also allowing others to see things in themselves that maybe folks have not shown or allowed before they met me or or before they interacted with me. This is good. This is really, really good. And I wasn't going to tell you this on on record. I was going to tell you at some point, but even writing your bio or this intro, I, I got emotional. Oh, oh. Why and I was that? like, why am I getting, emo- I had to ask, like, why am I getting emotional? But it goes back to what you said about the relationship piece, the safety piece, the belonging piece. Because again, people keep saying, even now, right, we're still in an ongoing pandemic. Um, some states have less restrictions than others, whatever, mm-hmm. it's ongoing. But I think I was dealing with more during fall 20 than I probably initially would have expressed and or had told someone outside of myself. Mm-hmm. And to be quite honest, had I not taken your class or you not been a professor for that class, I don't even know if I would have got to this point in my program, mm. which is a different conversation we, we can dive into a little bit later. But the one thing you just said just now was right, like being able to share your identity, really own your identity, own your story, your gifts, et cetera. And something I've been dealing with and, and have really been negotiating over the last, particularly the last 10 months is my work with international athletes. Mm. And this is good. We're going. This is really good. It's going to be a good conversation. And I say this because Working with international athletes in particular has definitely highlighted and brought to the forefront a lot of my privileged identities that I have not had to think about for 27, 28 years, particularly being an American, U.S. born, American citizen, uh, being a male, right, Um, cisgender, heterosexual. Like, it's really made me think about, like, yo, like, you have a lot of effing privilege. I can guess my pocket. A lot of fucking privilege, right? And had I not, if I was not Black, as as hard as that is in trying to imagine, I would hold the dominant privileges that we discuss in mm-hmm. higher ed student affairs theories, right? In a similar way, you just mentioned, you know, obviously being white, being male, being upper class, um, you know, SES, but you still identify as a gay person. And in a similar way as me being black, had you had you not identified as gay, you would still hold predominant privileges that would influence how we walk, shape the relationships around us. So how have you continued to negotiate that? I hope you understand what I'm asking, mm-hmm. given that you, we hold a lot of dominant but there's one identity in particular that really, obviously, you know, a lot of weight, feeling of oppression, et cetera. How, how have you dealt with that? Just talk to me. Yeah, no, I appreciate that and reflecting that back to me. And it's something I think about a lot too, because I feel like being gay, I can also um, hide that in a lot of ways. Like I think when we think about someone first meeting me, I, I like to believe they probably know I'm gay when they meet me, whether it's because of my research or because I'm talking about my partner, or maybe they did a dive on my Instagram or Twitter. And at the same time, I still have the opportunity to hide that. And so I think that even gives me more privilege in the sense Mm -hmm. of then I'm presenting as a white, tall guy who 
maybe is dressed a certain way and, and people can fill in the blanks for whatever that means, you know, for class or SES. And so I think for me, the way I've been able to navigate that is to be more comfortable talking about myself and to be more comfortable sharing about having a partner. And, and so instead of saying partner, I'll say my boyfriend, or I'll make sure mm. I use his pronoun so that I'm, mm. I'm making sure that folks know that this is a part of me and this is important for me. Um, and then at the same time, using the spaces that I'm given implicitly and explicitly to advocate for folks who maybe aren't in that space. So perhaps I was invited to something because folks, you know, saw me as a, as a leader in the community or saw me in some, some way, and maybe implicitly they saw a white person. And so they were inviting this white person in because there was comfort for them or safety for them. And they're juggling with their own biases. And so when I get into that space, I want to disrupt them. So if I look around and this, unfortunately, this happened a lot at my previous institution where I would get to a committee and I would look around and I would see a lot of white people and I would wonder, um, like, like what's happening here. And, and it, it took actually a colleague of mine sharing with me, like, it's okay to say, can we pause this meeting and talk about what it means for this decision to be made or for this committee to gather and there's no folks of color here or it's mostly male identified people here or we don't have representation from xyz and i know that also is like on the flip side that's labor on folks of color or labor on people represent having to represent and be visible and at the same time um what does it mean to just at least make space and what does it mean to to actually like work through that, you know, especially since higher ed and, and a lot of student affairs entities are still very white and very male. Um, so I think I try to remember that, like that I am white and I am male. And so if I'm in those spaces, how am I also like lifting folks up? How am I bringing people with me? How am I using my uh, opportunities to do research, to pull folks in, um, to, to, to not ask them to do more work, but to ask them to do work that they would be doing otherwise. And then maybe I have some access point to a journal or to a writing space, or I have some idea that I've been, you know, flirting with and, it, and it, it's more actualized when you bring folks along who don't share my same identities. And I try to think about it every day because I do walk around this space with lots of privilege and, and now being in a place like Texas, like where I feel is a lot different than the DMV in the sense of like what, what, what whiteness does and how whiteness works, at least institutionally. Um, I'm trying to be very mindful of what that means now as like a professor with a different level of power than I had as a student affairs practitioner in my previous space. Wish you're still in Maryland, Mike. No, no one probably calls you Mike. My bad. That's my sport. In... Speaking of sport, that's my sports name. I like. I like to think Mike is my sporty alter ego. <laughs> you still uh, handball? What you play? Pickleball. Pickleball. Yeah. Oh pickleball. yeah. I'm like in deep, like playing two, three times a week. Like I'm in a league, so yeah, it's a whole thing. <laughs> yeah, pickleball. So let me transition to segment two um, because you talk about storytelling, right? We talk about relationships. We talk about belonging, safety. But I'm curious because I'm, this is an ongoing process, right? You mentioned mm -hmm. your own reflection. I just spitballed some of the reflection I had, at least within this moment um, today. But how do these things inform and or have encouraged or inspired you to become an educator? Like why yeah. an educator? I, so I love writing, which was a, a big start for all of this for me, just and, and not like in long form writing, not like writing in these empirical, like, you know, rigid journals with gatekeeping and all that. I just love to write. Like, I like to write out my thoughts. I like to journal. I like to reflect. I like to write in very um, in questioning ways. So I like to write tons of questions. Like sometimes I'll fill a whole page of just questions and that's a version of me writing. And I found that that is actually like incredibly in my life translated to teaching 
to learning, to being able to, to slow down a little bit and process my writing. And so I found myself in a lot of ways, always knowing that I wanted to do education, but never understanding how that fit. I never saw myself as like a K to 12 teacher. I always only understood teaching as that context. So it was once I got out of college, really into college and out of college that I thought, oh, I can be an educator. And I have always been an educator. Um, one of your past guests mentioned like um, teaching in um, teaching in a church, like a, like a children's church type oh, of like yep. um, space. And, yep. and actually, as I was listening, I was like, oh, I, I remember teaching kids at my church for like five years when I was like 13. And so there's this idea of like, I guess I've always been in that space, but I never put the pieces together that I was an educator, that I was mm. teaching, that I was like engaging in learning processes and, and creating spaces for learning. So then when I was working as a student affairs educator, I always made sure that my role was defined as a student affairs educator. I mean, you know, and I'm sure you experienced this with athletics, that folks are super ready to put you in a functional area box. Oh, here's our athletics person. Here's our academic advising person. Oh, here's our res life person. You know, they definitely get put in a box. Here's our Greek life person. And I always rejected that because I'm like, the student that comes to us may come to us through that functional area, but they also may be a part of 12 other functional areas. And that doesn't even include the identities that they hold. And so mm. for me, especially working in fraternities and sororities, I had this give and take of like, these are these can be really toxic, exclusive spaces and still have a lot of issues today. But at the same time, every day I was working with identity issues, sexual violence, hazing, drugs and alcohol, coaching, leadership development. And so while they came to me in the fraternity and sorority lens, I was an educator in the sense that I got to tap into all these other areas of life and of, of the college experience. And so ultimately making the decision to become a faculty member, I was like, I want to teach with that perspective in mind. I, I want to teach with the idea that we don't have to be stuck in a lane and then forever in that lane that we can actually see higher ed and student affairs as this like massive landscape that actually can be all of those things and not just, oh, you're a housing professional and therefore you're on call. No, a housing professional has like 45 other things that they're doing. And yet there's this perspective that I think is still continued, a narrative, if you will, in our field. I'm glad you brought that up because the class where we got introduced to each other, a student professor type of role, of course, you met before mm -hmm. then, was the facilitating student learning course. And I can't remember if that was the first class I took between that and seminar. I forget which class came first. But I do remember the very first assignment in that class. <laughs> It was like eight to 12 questions on a page. Oh, yeah. I will never forget because everyone always asks, like, what's been like one of the highlights of your program? And this is always, if it's not number one, it's top two. And the question was, what is learning? I know you remember this. Mm -hmm. What is learning? And how do like your identities or like story, like shape how you learn? Something to that effect. You still mm -hmm. you think about it now. It fucks me up. But the, the page limit or the page, whatever requirement was eight pages. And I remember going home. I was like... <laughs> There is no way <laughs> that I can sit here and type eight, pay, however many words it is, to, to talk about learning. Mm -hmm. And as I started, after you know, got out of writer's block and started to type, I had to like limit and like stop typing just to fit the eight. How do you even think of that? Like where, like why start with that? Particularly in the class, obviously focused on learning, but like as you think about how we learn, what identities shape our learning. You say, you're, you know, you're always questioning, you love, why that question in particular, because it's so broad yet so deliberate um, in how you address that? Yeah, I mean, I think part of it is like, really, what does it mean to learn is also like such a 
epistemological question yes. <laughs> like there's like yes. the, it, and it, it's also like very philosophical and it's also so deep and different for all of us and for some people it's this rigid I learned how to tie my shoes by this very specific way and so learning for them is this mechanical formulaic there's like a linear progression to learning and for others it's this this massive like you know multicolored, multi-shaped, multi-experience, dive right in kind of thing. And so I think for me as an instructor, it's also so helpful to understand who's showing up in my learning space. So aside from the class being about learning, which I think I'll touch on in a second, the, the other thing is like, how am I gonna get to know the learners? And that has shaped how I teach almost every class. I don't necessarily ask that question, but I do try to understand the learners because it's, it's unfair for me to teach, especially in a doctoral and master's program. It's unfair mm -hmm. for me to teach without at least pausing to be like, who the heck is showing up? And if every person writes, here's a experience I have with learning or every student writes or, or, or many students write multiple versions of what learning is for them. I think I have a responsibility to try to tap into some of that. You're not going to get everyone, you know, you're not going to meet everyone's exact learning need, but at the same time, you can find ways to try to pull them in in different ways. I mean, we've both been in classes where 85, 90% of the class felt like a waste. And, mm -hmm. and so I'm like, well, let me try to make 50% feel like a waste. Like if I can move that down for some students, that's like key for me. And then on the other side, a class about learning, like for me thinking about the very students showing up, I mean, you know, you got, you're getting a degree in student affairs for me, same program for me. Like, if we really believe that students are learning outside of the classroom and we are the educators who are helping with that outside of the classroom learning, then we have to talk about what learning means in like large context, small context, individual context. And so I think for me, I try to make that a little less academic also to let students do storytelling and to let students do draw on that personal experience. And, you know, some scholars would call it informal theory. And it's like, well, yeah, because I have something that I experienced and it felt right or it felt like it made sense and so that is valuable but so often especially in higher ed and student affairs we might uh and I, so often maybe is not the best term because i think a lot of scholars are now disrupting this but for for my training and from for for others there's this like this underground or underlying point that is like learn these theories that have x y and z sense making and like mm -hmm. we both know that doesn't include every student we mm -hmm. both know that that also is like outdated that's like white student christian student well-off student, like those kinds of things that to disrupt that a little bit allows us to say like, oh, well, Tim's learning or Michael's learning also really matters. And it may conflict with the theory that we're talking about. And also that's okay. Let's critique that. Let's open that up. Let's rip that apart. Let's make sense of it through our own lens. That matters a lot to me. And I try to do that with a lot of my um, teaching to, to think about that the critique is allowed. And, and one other thing is students often will say to me like, um, like they'll apologize. They'll say like, oh, I'm so sorry. I didn't really care for this article. And like, and I'm so sorry. And I know offense to the authors. And I'm like, no, please offend the authors. Like, that's okay. And, and I think about even my own research. Like, I hope that in some class, someone's reading one of my articles and it's like, Ugh, what was this scholar thinking? And I, and I want that because that might inspire them in their informal theories or their lived experiences to maybe go do another research topic or just open that up. Maybe that's a conference presentation or maybe it's just like shapes how they advise students by way of disagreeing with something and that disagreeing is okay. Yeah, yeah, it is okay. And the critique is okay. And as I mentioned before, that class is super important because in that paper, another question was like, how do you know when you've learned? Mm. You guys like, I'm like, hey, that's a good question. But that class and particularly that paper, that's when I realized like, my blackness, right? My millennialhood, like that informs how I show up in every space. Mm -hmm. Obviously being a black millennial educator is what I talk about a lot. 
I'm not just on this podcast, but in my bios now, like that's what I lead with. Tim Bryson, Black Millennial Educator, which allowed me to do yada, 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 yada. But one thing you just mentioned, oh, go ahead. I was just saying like how, how frustrating that there is the institution of higher ed in a lot of spaces and also society wants you to reject that, like wants you to fit into a different. So it's like, I think you're also, that's part of you being a storyteller, Tim, is like that you're also telling that story as a way for other people to be like, yes, I can also do that. I can also let that be salient and important and guide my practice, not just be a part of me showing up in my practice, but like this guides my work, this guides my worldview because it's with you every single day. And, and there are so many factors like begging you or forcing you to reject that. So, yeah. This is good because you, it's a great transition to my next point, right? You talk about fitting in this box, right? And not feeling like we can critique. And again, sit on this learning piece as well. And one of the critiques I've had, and I've been vocal, it's not a surprise to anybody that's heard me talk on this podcast or in person or at a brewery, but is just doctoral education in general, right? And there are definitely steps, right? The coursework, the candidacy, whatever, the, the dissertation. But how do we center learning in this process? Mm-hmm. Because I can't speak for you, but speaking for myself, there are definitely times where it's like you're just checking this class, EDMS 645, that class, ECP7. Oh. And the learning is not happening, right? The learning is not yeah. taking place. And so now that you're on the other side of this journey, at least from the um, you know, degree conferral standpoint, like how can we, how can even I as a, you know, someone as a student now, continue to center learning in this process mm-hmm. and in this system that's just checking boxes? Yeah, and honestly, I struggle with this. Like as a faculty member who doesn't believe in the GRE, who doesn't really care about grades, who would rather you show up, read, engage in class and take whatever piece you can because also the world is still happening. Like we're, yeah. you're learning in the middle of a pandemic. And so yeah. like, yeah. I, I have this mentality, but then I'm at, you know, another R1 institution that that does hold those things as really valuable mm-hmm. and that does really celebrate rankings. And it's not just my current institution. I think it's a lot of institutions yeah. you saw with the U S world news, like lots of people rolled out that press release, you know, and it's like, that was just <laughs> like an automatic response without pausing to be like, Oh yeah, we also know the critiques of, of rankings. And we also know that these can be really problematic in a lot of ways. And so for me to center learning, I really try to do, exactly what I say within the confines uh, that I'm bound by, you know, an institution. So for me, I still have to assign you a grade and I still have to give you a new, a number with your assignment, but I'm also not looking for a rigid rubric. I'm looking for you to contribute some sort of um, response to the learning. So it's a response Mm -hmm. to an article or it's a, you've made meaning of something, or I've given you feedback on APA format, also problematic and you've incorporated that in the next assignment. And so for me, if I'm seeing that demonstration of learning, you will get through my classes, you will get A's. I mean, you know, you've been in my class, you'll pass and you'll move forward. I also want to give a ton of grace. Like, I don't think learning can happen unless there's grace. So for me, I also want to make sure students know that you can talk with me if you're comfortable. That's also hard because I'm a stranger until I'm not. And so especially, you know, I think about the students here, they committed to UT before I did. And so I show up as a new faculty member. They, they, they maybe picked the program for other people. And then they got me as a faculty member and they don't know if I'm saying truth. So if I say, yeah, I'm super flexible, here's the deadline. But if you turn it in two days later, it's not the end of the world, but I want to start with this deadline for those who like that kind of structure. And then a student is going to turn it in the next day and sends me a long email that says, oh my gosh, I'm so sorry. I've got these things going on. 
And my response is like, yeah, that's fine. Turn it in two days later. Like, especially as an instructor, if I'm not going to read it for three or four days, or if I'm not going to read it until the next day, I, I want there to be that grace. Again, I like a starting point though, because it does help with organization and it does help with like trying to move from thing to thing in a semester, but having grace also allows students to value the learning in a different way versus just valuing the checkbox. Because what happens, I think, is if you start to get really rigid about grading and if you start to get really rigid about deadlines or students missing class or things like that, then students are focused on those rules and they're not focused on what you're asking them to learn in the classroom. And so I think for me, the way I've centered learning is trying to say, I just want you to come in your best self. And some mm -hmm. weeks it's not your best self because mm -hmm. I've been there. Some mm -hmm. months it's not your best self. Do literally the most you can. And if you're comfortable, again, knowing power dynamics, and, and that's hard to put aside, but as much as you can put it aside, if comfortable, communicate with me on how I can make this work for you. The other thing I'll say is I'm also super flexible with all my assignments. Like I, I think there's value in the assignments that I've created, but most of them I created before I met any of the students. So how um, unfair for me to ask a student who is working in a policy role to do the exact same assignment to a student who works in res life. And one student is actually on a campus and the other works in the higher ed world, but not on a campus. And so it's like, I have to be open to saying to a student, yeah, and if you want to write that a different way, that's okay. And all students have that option. And again, I like a starting point. So having the, the description and the deadlines and all those things is a starting point. But if you have something that will make more sense for your learning, utility, all those things, present that. I'm, I'm very open to, to doing something different than I have proposed because I created that before I ever met you. Um, and so I always try to think about that as grace also, which is like, I'm giving myself grace to say, I don't know all y'all. So here's what I'm thinking could be an assignment that makes sense. And if we realize that something else will be better, that's okay too. And not feeling like that's a, you know, ding on my ego, or that's like a, that makes me a bad professor, or that makes me a bad educator. I think it just means like flexibility matters. And, and I, I sometimes apply that from my friend group. Like I, I think in my social life, I want friends to offer that grace. And so it's like, why wouldn't I offer that same grace in a, in a professional setting? So I would say that's, those are ways that I try to center learning as much as I can, knowing that the confines of higher ed are still rigid with grades and GREs and all these things. Come back. <laughs> come come back. Start your own school. You, you know Dr. Woman, right? Dr. Taylor Woman? Yeah, yeah. I love Taylor. Yeah. Y'all go through the same training, whatever training, obviously faculty go through, but the same training. Probably. I think we have a lot in common in terms of how we approach the world and how we approach education. And actually studying in Cuba with Dr. Woman was really helpful because I feel like I entered that space with my pre-doctoral mind of like, no, I've got to do the assignments and get everything done. And it has to be rigid. And, and his response was kind of like, or you can show up and just be a sponge and you can show up and just learn and you can show up and do your best. And your contribution is going to be super different from the person next to you because you're super different people. And that's okay. Like for us to honor and embrace that. Yeah. Y'all hands down. I wouldn't be here without y'all. No, no, no. Mutual nah. feeling. Accept your roses, man. You, <laughs> you and Dr. Woodman, like y'all, you and this learning piece, Dr. Woodman, this international ed is like, I'm unstoppable now. I've been prepared by two of the best. My opinion. <laughs> My personal and we'll keep, we'll keep supporting you. Keep supporting you. Oh, yeah, I got my love and support as well, Dr. Goodman. But I'm not going to transition to segment three before first talking about another pivotal and really influential role, a positional role that you had at Maryland um, and really your entire life, particularly within government, student government. Mm. And so I know in class in with the winter term 2021, we talked about uh, student governance, both mm -hmm. at the undergraduate and graduate level. 
But I, could you just talk more about your experience as president of GSG in particular? What's the word I want to use? Not discrimination, but the mm, dismissal of a lot of graduate students in not only communication, but also policy um, top down from, from universities and colleges across the U.S. Yeah. Being president of the grad student government was one of the hardest experiences of my life. It was also one of the most revealing experiences about the problems with higher education that I have ever had as a student, as a practitioner, as an administrator. Being president of, of GSG really revealed and unconcealed a lot, and it was incredibly disheartening. Um, and I will say, I was, I am, I am, and was so grateful to have Dr. Kim Griffin, who was my advisor, to be able to process that with because. I, even before I ran for president, I, I talked with her about like, should I even do this thing? This feels like a big deal. And it feels very stressful. And, um, and she was incredibly supportive. But also then she made herself available for me to say, okay, I was just at a meeting where a senior administrator said X. That's a problem, right? Like, and so to get that affirmation from um, a, a, a professor and advisor and um, it was just huge for me. But Ultimately, my experience with GSG was one that was driven first by wanting to make a change on campus. When I got to the university, I felt super alone. I felt super isolated. I really looked around and was like, this institution is not set up for grad students. Like socially, uh, like even academically to some degree, I did not feel like the institution was taking care of graduate students. I felt like my department and my college did a good job of that. But then when I started to get out of that world and started to meet people in other colleges and other departments on campus, I, I was just left in shock. I mean, students would come to the, the GSG office sharing about massive discrimination they were facing, but they couldn't speak up because their, uh, their faculty member was a big author or had a huge grant or had all this power over them. We had lots of, to the point about international students, a lot of international students who would talk about labor inequities that they were being taken advantage of and kind of threatened with, well, you know, this funding goes a long way as an international student. And so they were also kind of scared into silence um, I also sat in meetings where senior administrators were basically supportive of old school styles of academic hazing um, to one point where a, a master's student senator um, said to a senior administrator, what you've just described as hazing and everyone in the room, and we just all sat there in silence and you could hear a pin drop and watch this senior administrator kind of flounder in their response. And so for me, as someone who it was older, you know, than, than many other graduate students I felt like I was at the time. I also was looking at some of these senior administrators and, and wondering, like, are you looking at me as a, as a colleague or are you looking at me as just another graduate student who will come in and who will go? And unfortunately, some of this was affirmed, and I've shared this with a few people, some of this was affirmed at my graduation when I sat in the back office at my apartment in my sweats watching my graduation because I was class of 2020 and the university president said something along the lines of, you know, seniors or, you know, you didn't imagine this your freshman year. And I just sat back in my chair and thought this graduation isn't even for me. And so so that was a huge pause point for me even in departure. And it's not just Maryland. I mean, it's a lot of institutions that have this same issue and people take advantage of grad students and grad labor in massive ways, which is why we see grad students mobilizing. And, and I was really fortunate to be president of grad student government while there was also this group on campus called the Fearless Student Employees who were also fighting for collective bargaining for grad students and were fighting the institution. And to watch senior administrators go to the state capitol and fight against graduate students was also revealing uh, because they weren't actually hearing the hundreds of letters and the dozens of student speakers who were speaking out about 
um, the inequities that were happening for grad students and they just kept the company line. And that was really hard for me. And so I've tried now as a faculty member to always advocate for graduate students, to always monitor grad student labor. Like I'm now one person in a very small bubble, but I try my hardest to name when grad inequities are happening. I try hard to be open and talk about it. You know, some of my research with uh, Dr. Don Culpepper um, has talked about graduate student experiences and, and Dr. Culpepper has done even more outside of that space because, and for me, I think that matters like for us to be able to share stories and narratives. And so, yeah, all of that to say, Grad student government really revealed a lot to me, um, and it, it it made me a better person in the sense of um, you have to go through some trauma to like become a better person in some capacities. That was certainly one for me, but at the same time, it, it made me a better practitioner because I realized that I was watching a lot of these folks um, mistreat human beings on campus and and get away with it and have responses from all the way up, you know, the hierarchy of the institution that seemed to not really hear what graduate students were saying. So that has challenged me in a lot of ways to, to maybe be an academic dean or to maybe go up, you know, an academic administrator position in the future, because I do want to make sure that they're, you know, that that's a part of my practice and my pedagogies. Um, but it was, it was really difficult. It was really difficult. Yeah, you've done, you've done a lot. And a lot of great work. No, I mean, in the best way possible, not just again in at your previous institution, but at institutions and stops, both in higher education and with the, in non higher education spaces that have changed uh, lives, but also have uprooted systems. Mm. Uh, so I will say thank you, right? My Thanks. experience is, is different because of your leadership. Um, but as I think about what you've done in your practice, right, what you're doing in your scholarship, uh, we did speak a lot about learning. Of course, we just mm. uh, spoke about governance. But I'll be remiss, and this conversation would be incomplete if we didn't talk about unlearning as well, mm. right? And I know that's part of what people are like, what are you learning in your program? What have you, what it's like, I've learned a lot, but now I'm saying I've also <laughs> unlearned and like have relearned some other things as mm -hmm. well. And so can you just talk more with me and us about just unlearning? I think learning gets a lot of credit, a lot of attention, but it's unlearning, similar to your point about grace that also can't happen without giving ourselves and each other grace as well. Yeah. Unlearning, I think, also ha happens in collaboration. It happens in relationships. I think sometimes we are in a space and a place and time that is hard to hear that there's something to unlearn, let alone like grapple with it and then do the unlearning. I think one of my first experiences with unlearning was, it was over 10 years ago, uh, Chris Madrano, a colleague of mine who we were at Indiana University together. I was a first year master's student and we were talking about colorblindness. And I, in, in the grad lounge, we had like this little grad lounge, we called it the grad pad because there was like six of us, you know, packed in with like four desks. And I said something along the lines of like, oh, well, I'm, I'm a military kid and I grew up with people of all races and ethnicities and I'm colorblind. And Chris turned it to me and said, what race am I? And I said, oh, well, you identify as Latina. She said, yeah, yeah, what color am I? I said, I, you're brown. And she said, yeah, so are you colorblind? And I mean, and of course, you know, I like did the white person like response of like, well, I, what I was trying to like, I, you know, I was like trying yeah. my hardest to share with Chris. Yeah. Like I understood what she was saying, but I also didn't want to back down. And it took, you know, Chris and her labor as a woman of color to mm -hmm. do that work to, for me. And then it took me to be able to say, okay, so in what ways have I, contributed to this like awful narrative of colorblindness that, that has left Chris out and has left other people out and has also further impacted communities that I've worked with and been a part of. And so I think for me, it, it 
it sparked with someone. I don't think that unlearning always has to spark with someone because that's also a lot of work and labor. But Chris mm -hmm. and I were also good friends and she felt comfortable to share that with me. And then also to say, now go do your work. Like, and, and I needed to go do that work on my own. Um, and so I would say that was like one of my early experiences of, of really unlearning what I had deeply in my core believed to be the case. Um, and, and that shows up in, in periods of time. So you have to also like reassess what that means for you. Um, and, and I think that that's also like for me, even considering like my queer identity. And so the ways that the queer community has co-opted things from communities of color and trans people and drag communities and especially white gay men and what harm that we do often within that space. And so I've even had to, you know, within the past couple of years, pause and say like, by doing X, Y, or Z thing, how am I contributing to um, utilizing folks of color and in my memes, in my, the way mm. I tweet, in the way I talk, in my vernacular. Um, and so I've been trying to be mindful of that. So the unlearning isn't like, oh, Chris sparked this thing in me and now I've unlearned and now I get to move on. It's like, no, no, the unlearning also has to be a lifelong, has to be and can be lifelong work uh, because also like society changes and life changes and, and the way we interact with one another changes and the world around us continues to happen. So that's been my experience, I would say like in my personal life as a practitioner and as a professional, I've also had to unlearn in the sense of realizing that my perspectives and beliefs impact me and also my identities make sense for that. But at the same time, someone next to me might want to have those same philosophies and ideals, but their identities may make that harder for them. So for example, um, I remember having conversations in a doc class, you know, several years ago about professionalism and, you know, dress code and all those things. And I have always been one that like, I'm in jeans right now. And actually I threw a blazer on just because I thought this pin was cute for this, but <laughs> I'm typically in like a button down and jeans. And I remember saying to, you know, my, a group of my peers that like, I'm always going to be in a button down and jeans and, and having to also process the response of like, but that's not possible for everyone. So yes, we all want to disrupt the system and be in a button down and jeans. And at the same time, folks of color, women, folks who look younger, but you know, there's lots of different reasons why someone would not be able to just be in a button down and jeans. And so like, what does that mean for me to unlearn how I view professionalism and still want to disrupt that and still want to be in my jeans and my button down and at the same time know that there's implications. So like, what does it mean to be talking about that without naming the system that might make it harder for someone else to wear a button down and jeans? So those are, I think, ways that I've also tried to, to do unlearning within um, the classroom and within my professional life and even things like articles and syllabi and like, mm -hmm. it's so, you know, it's so easy to believe that we can just say, yeah, I learned about student development theories in my grad program and therefore the current grad program will learn about them too. And what does it mean to like, let go of some of that? And, and there's lots of scholars on Twitter who um, have talked about this and I'm going to be a bad peer and not cite any of them, but i we'll go and find who those folks were because I remember thinking a couple of years ago, like, wait, there's people in student affairs and higher ed who aren't teaching student development theories and the way that I learned them so rigidly. And then I'm like, wait, that makes a lot of sense. Like I, I should disrupt those and I, I can critique those and I can open those up with a critical lens. So I think that's also been a way of like taking risks and, and finding peers and colleagues to be able to like lean on. And, and I have thankfully a huge network, uh, not huge. I have a good quality network of friends who did doc experiences at the same time as me to be able to um, lean on and process with and just say like, 
am I fucking up here? Like, does this make sense? And for them to be able to say, yeah, and mm-hmm. to do the reverse, hey, I, this thing happened in my class. What do you think? And for me to be comfortable to say, wait a minute. So I think that's also been really helpful is that unlearning can happen when you have those peers in your um, professional network who have been through some stuff with you and have seen you grow and evolve over time. And you've been the same for them, be able to have those candid, real conversations that has been like massive for me. Yeah. Yeah. It goes back to what you said before, right? It's all about relationships, community, the safety piece. And I'm like, I wrote that down. Um, it's, it's uh, yelling at me right now. And as I mentioned before, you've done a lot of great work. You continue to do a lot of great work uh, now in the uh, the state of Texas. I won't, I won't say the great state, but the state of Texas. <laughs> and so transitioning as a segment three, right? How can I and how can our podcast community best support you? Mm. Oh, that's a great question. And also, like, thank you for that offering, because I think that um, you have a great community of folks, and I feel like I'm a part of your community in lots of ways. So I, I, I will continue to listen and you are. have, uh, <laughs> I ended up actually doing like a deep clean of my podcasts. And so it's nice now to like not have to scroll to find yours that I can just, it's like within the six that I've got going. Thank I'm you. trying to simplify parts <laughs> of my life, but I would say to, to ways to support me, I think in the context of at least student governance and student um, government and student leadership is probably the best. I know you have a lot of folks in your world who are students, who support students, who work with students, who teach students. And I think for me, it's like honoring that labor is one piece, but also honoring that voice. So actually bringing students into spaces and letting them do leadership, um, valuing the the representative body. uh, And that that may mean on campus, but it also may mean in the community. I think that was one of the things as I do my research and continue research on student governance is remembering that students are leading in many ways off campus. So they may have like roles at the state capitol, they may be doing like lobbying days, they may have an internship with the mayor or a state representative. And I think that sometimes we forget that that's really valued because it's not happening on campus. So I would say like trying to continue to push students into those spaces, create room for students in those spaces. Um, I just finished a study this summer about Uh, folks who were formerly in student government, who recently ran for, who serve in public office as like mayors, state senators, state representatives, school board members, city councilors, things like that. And many of them talked about how they always want students to come, you know, do things, whether it's lobbying days or internships, or even just connecting to talk about like what's happening with the town gown relationship for institutions that are nearby. And so I think that's another thing is for folks who are alums of institutions, which many of your listeners are, is also like what ways can you create leadership spaces and opportunities for students and pay them, pay them and, and, and like compensate them for that work. Um, because I think that that goes a really long way. And you're also complementing their academic experience with this thing that we believe is real student affairs, the co-curricular experiences. And so you're, you're furthering that academic mission by letting them be a part of something that happens in the real world, if you will, even though you know the institution is the real world as well. So that's, I would say that's ways to support. Um, if you know, people who want to do research on student government, let me know. There's so much to be done. And there's also not a ton of people doing work just on student government. And so um, there's just, we still see it every day. The first X, the first Y, the first Z um, person with X identity. And like, that means that there's a lot of work to be done in understanding then the space of student government, this very historically white privileged space. And so if there are folks who want to do research or just want to talk about student government or had a student government experience, reach out. Like I'm happy and comfortable for you to share my, you know, contact information, my socials and all that stuff. Cause I love collaborating and I love to collaborate with folks who have 
that interest. And it's such a unique interest. I know like people are like student government, but uh, it was a big part of my life. And it, and it, it is a huge power play in campus and whether we like it or not, and whether that power is warranted or, or used for good or not, it still exists in most every college campus. And to be honest, most high schools and middle schools as well. Yeah. And for those, particularly uh, my college athletic friends, college athletics staff members, the student athlete, student athlete advisory committee, SAC, which I know I talked about in class, I don't know if I'm going to co-write that paper with you or one of my people going to write it with you, but it yeah. needs to be um, unearthed and just flipped on its head because it's a mess. It's, it's, yeah. it, it, it's a mess, but let me move forward. before, before I get Can I say to one more thing really quick, Tim? Go ahead. You just made me think about, there's a huge athletic connection too. I was just having this conversation with a student. I mean, and you know this, most student governments also have something to do with student fees, which often have a lot to do with college athletics or at least recreation sports. And so mm-hmm. I also think like there's a massive place for this intersection between student government or student governance and athletics. And if it's not that there's a fee that student government oversees to athletics, there's a voting person on the fee that goes to athletics. And so typically that body, that person comes from student government and that representative body. So I think that that intersection is huge. And there, there are like massive implications for a student government uh, and their opinions of their insights on college athletics and the power they hold financially. We're going to do another That's episode. That's a whole other podcast. No, we're going to do another episode on that because you might have get me riled up. And I and <laughs> don't, yeah, we can't do that right now. We cannot do that right now, Dr. Goodman. But before we bounce from this episode, couple questions for you, starting with question one. It's probably going to be pickleball, and I'm going to start laughing. <laughs> but what is your favorite sports memory? Oh, good. Okay, I have, a, I have a sad one, and then I have a good one. All right, I'm listening. We got you. So I played soccer my whole life, was, like, on the track to be, like, a very, very good soccer player. Multiple knee injuries. I've had two ACL surgeries. Like, so, so unfortunately, soccer, you know, it wasn't in my bones or my joints. But <laughs> one of my favorite memories is I was probably 12 or 13, playing in this classic league in Oklahoma. And my dad was my coach and he made me so, I was a goalie, played keeper my whole life. He made me so mad that in the middle of the game, I ripped off my keeper gloves, pulled off my uniform, threw it on the ground, stormed off the field, and then sat by the car until the entire game finished. Of course, I got into tons of trouble. And my dad was like, what you're not going to do is embarrass me like that ever again. But it was also like one of those memories for me of like, you're not going to always get your way. Like, and you're going to get lost. You're going to get scored on. Like, you're not going to be the best player. So that's probably one of my like sadder memories was me being this like, awful 13 year old going through puberty and like rip I remember ripping my gloves off I'll never forget that um and then I would say more recently like I've just I've been playing pickleball for a long time and I've known about it for like 15 years and I have gotten pretty good at it and I'm like very proud of myself so um I'm in a league on Monday nights here in Austin and uh, after our first night I was ranked 20 out of 50 in this league and then the next week I moved up to 19 and then on Monday, I won three matches. So I think I'm going to move up to like 16 or 17. So follow my journey of pickleball. My goal is to make the top 10 this season and then in the future play in like harder leagues. But I'm, oh. I'm feeling good about my current pickleball life. <laughs> yeah, you break, a, you break a good sweat doing that too, right? Oh, my shirt's usually drenched afterwards, yeah. which is like an excellent workout. I remember seeing those pics. Yeah. Second question, second question. Your top five musical artists. Oh, um, great question. I would say the first one is Brandy Carlisle, who just came out with an album. Um, she's a queer folk singer. 
And uh, yeah, I just, there's something, I'm like an emotional person. And so for me, I, I kind of give in to like the emotional, um, the emotional types of music. Obviously, I'm sure you were like wondering if my excitement for Adele's uh, new music is like everyone else's and the answer is yes. <laughs> um, I wouldn't say she's one of my top fives, but Brandi Carlisle is definitely one of my top ones. Um, I love Rihanna because I love to dance and I love like uh, the old school, like, um, like back in my early days of going to gay bars and just like hearing, you know, a, a Rihanna song was just, uh, it was like uninhibited. <laughs> I'll like, leave it uh, at like that. umbrella type Rihanna. Yes. I mean, that's like literally to be on a dance floor when I was 25, 26. <laughs> um, so that's all that stinks. So uh, what, let's see, Rihanna, I love Rihanna. Who else is in my play? I listen to a lot of random music, musical theater. Um, so the, the, um, the, I'm trying to give you like a range of music types. So the uh, whole Come From Away, I was trying to remember the name of the musical, Come From Away, they just actually put a um, live version of the musical on, uh, I think it was on Apple TV, um, but it's a Broadway musical. It's about September 11th and like these, uh, this place that basically had all these flights land to kind of pause everyone while, you know, the aftermath of September 11th was unfolding in Newfoundland. And the music's just beautiful. And, and I listened to that and, and then got to watch it and, Loved it. So I was that's number three. Let's see, four and five. I like Little Mix. So thinking about like a, a girl group, <laughs> also a lot of bops. I think if Little Mix existed when I was 25, that would also be my middle of the dance floor at a gay club. Um, so now at, in my late mid to late thirties, I don't know that I'll ever be on a dance floor again, but if I am, I hope Little Mix comes on. <laughs> uh, we'll see. And then Oh, that's funny. Uh, let's see. Let's think of another different genre of like my my music is very random. Okay, yeah, we'll do a, a yeah. I like I like all sorts of music, and then we'll do a um, a country. So I like the Chicks also. Um, formerly the Dixie Chicks, thankfully changed their name. Um, I like their kind of big fu to the country music uh, world, and also I I think they were way ahead of their time in the sense of like their political beliefs. Um, and then I loved their collaboration with Beyonce a few years ago at the CMAs, which was also this big, um, a, a continued FU to the country music world who also refuses to acknowledge Beyonce as a country singer, even though there's lots of good nuggets from her work as a country singer. So, Yo, yeah. I, I will pay to see you dance to Umbrella by Rihanna in the middle of it. Honestly, the of the there might part. be a video out there of me <laughs> doing something similar. So let me go through the old, uh, the old archive. <laughs> I would definitely pay to watch that. Two more questions for you. Yeah. If you could, if you could go to brunch, bottomless brunch, with five mm -hmm. people, you plus five people, who would they be? Uh, any no no rules. Anything goes. Any five people, dead or alive. All right. I would say first, I would do Harvey Milk. Um, I'm very curious about uh, the history of queer politics and gay people in politics in particular. So I would love to learn from Harvey Milk and engage with Harvey Milk. Uh, I'd also love to have brunch with Lil Nas X. I, um, I and I actually think this this collaboration, like Harvey Milk, Lil Nas X, me. I don't know. I'm thinking this brunch is going to be really interesting. Um, so that would be another person. Let's see. Uh, this is like maybe personal. My grandfather. I think he passed away when I was 15. So I think it would be uh, interesting to learn more about him. He was an immigrant from Italy. Um, didn't speak a ton of English and. Um, we got to know him, you know, until I was 15 and then he passed away. And so I just wonder about 
him and things that he grew up with. He moved to the U.S. when he was 18. So like he had a whole life in Italy before coming to the U.S. And so I would just have lots of questions of unanswered things, you know, the, the unanswered family things that I think are often percolating for me. Let's see, two other folks. Um, I would love to also... Uh, I'm not a massively religious person, but I would I would say Jesus Christ because I have a lot of questions <laughs> and right. I have a lot of um, wonderment. And I also would love to, you know, be able to say, oh, yeah, I had a conversation with Jesus and uh, you all are wrong <laughs> or or, oh, you all are right, actually. <laughs> um, and also Jesus is black. You know, like I want to also know like what race Jesus was. And, like, I think we know the answer to that, but I'd like to have that uh, data to show my friends from Oklahoma and their problematic ways. <laughs> This is a good brunch. Who, who's the fifth person? The fifth person. Um, let's invite you. I feel like you'd enjoy that conversation as well. I feel like yeah. you can be my you can be my sidekick with this random mishmash of people. <laughs> Jesus and Lil Nas X. Can you imagine them sitting next to each other in the conversation that oh, would ensue? That would be funny. Oh, that would be hilarious. <laughs> okay, this is good. This is good. So then the last question for you. Who do you want to see and or hear from on our podcast, on the Walk With TV podcast? Mm. Oh, I love that question. I mean, I, I think like there are really cool people doing work that is like groundbreaking. And, and, and I'll think just speak from the student affairs perspective mm-hmm. in, in higher ed. Um, TJ Stewart from uh, Iowa University of uh, Iowa State. Sorry, I get those conflated when all the Iowans are now going to like come for me. But um, (laughs) he went to UGA for his uh, PhD and is just brilliant and has incredible scholarship on activism and also has incredible scholarship on college students and sex work. And I just think that there's a real need for his work. And I think he is someone who is also just wonderful. And uh, I think you'd love a conversation with him. Same TJ Stewart, look up his stuff. Um, He just had something come out actually in uh, JDHE. Uh, within the past 24 hours. Um, I also feel like other folks that I would say are like my kind of like scholar idols, <laughs> scholar crushes. Um, Z Nicolazzo from the University of Arizona. Uh, I mean, you're, you're going to like nod to all these names because they're all like brilliant and wonderful. Um, Dr. D.L. Stewart is someone whose work I love and I also find to be incredibly um, uh, important for, for our scholarship. Actually, just there was this the Ohio State Qual Lab had some or has programs often, but there's a program that they recently did that I'm going to use that features Dr. Stewart. And so that's oh, yeah. part of my class today, actually, in just a couple hours. Um, so I would say those are three people who I feel like would just be really wonderful and um, exceptional folks. In terms of like I other roles, I think it'd be awesome to have a university president um, to have a conversation, you know, with the university president to interrogate, you know, leadership. And, and I think that's also like, you might get the politician university president. My hope is that you get the like real university president. Cause I unfortunately think that there's so much politic with that role that you might end up having like a more frustrating conversation than a helpful one. So hopefully your listeners will, will, you know, recommend some university presidents or folks who would be willing to do it. And I'll think about my own Rolodex of folks that I might know, but yeah, those are people that I'd love to see. I'm plotting Dr. Tate LSU. Mm. I'm coming. Dr. William B. Tate LSU. I'm coming. I love it. You heard it here in this episode, this conversation with Michael Goodman. Dr. Goodman, this was fun. Yes, anytime. I feel like it flew by. I'm happy to connect anytime. And and I also thank you for doing this, like uplifting stories and bringing forward perspectives and also supporting people's work. Like, I just think that's huge and valuable. And that's that's how we progress forward in our field is to, to lift up each other, to support each other, to love on each other. 
and 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 then also to use this as value like i think they're like the last podcast i just finished the, your last episode with dr walker and i was like okay how can i use this for one of my classes like i, I want to use segments of this for a class and um like i hope that more people do that with your work because there's there's incredible value in having uh conversation as a way of learning and i think that you provide space for that i mean four seasons long of that and more that. to come and definitely definitely more to come so again but thank you again for your time your labor your energy yes um but also thank you on record at least on walk with tv record uh for using your privilege uh to really to sponsor my learning i'm um, invest in my learning as a doc student again it's not a joke damn sure not be a second year doc student at maryland um it weren't for you uh, and dr Ta- dr taylor woman in particular so appreciate dr you. bryson loading you're getting there one, one semester at a time. You to Dr. TFB. But for everyone else, again, thank you for listening to this conversation with Dr. Michael A. Goodman. Um, again, we're not playing around this season. We're getting straight to it, getting active. Um, so continue to listen, continue to rate and review our podcast on Apple Podcasts. Um, and as always, share it with your friends, family, colleagues, and community. But as always, until then, welcome. Oh, you know, man, you know, man, you know, man.